0: I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 17. John 17. Uh, last week I introduced this chapter and we'll be spending the next few weeks here. I just want to say I appreciate the the number of emails I received this past week on links to other sermons on John 17. Uh, you, you know you've just, you've really knocked it out of the park as a pastor when members of your own congregation are sending you links to other sermons from the text you just preached. Um, actually, some of you, you sent me links to a, a 33-week series on John uh, chapter 17, others a 27-week series on John 17, and I just want to say I take that as a challenge Now we'll just be spending a few weeks here. We will be reading the entire chapter. We'll likely be doing this each week that we are in John 17 because it's just hard to pull out one section. All these themes are so interwoven. And I know your eyes have looked at a lot of things this week, a lot of billboards, blogs, emails, everything competing for your attention. But what we're looking at now is different. This is the word of God and demands our attention and our focus. John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, yours they were. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, Father, we ask that through your Spirit, you would once again bring bring clarity to these words in front of us. But we need more than clarity. We need open hearts and open minds to receive this truth. And so we pray that your Spirit, he would do that. That we would absorb these life-changing words. I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I've got three little girls, ages 13, 10, and 8. Um, they all share a room together. Um, it's actually the smallest room in our house, so we've just kind of crammed them all in there. And I would have to say, though, as a parent, the greatest joy I have is listening to them while they're in their room. Uh, So I will go in, I'll tuck them in bed, um, give them goodnight kisses, turn off the lights, close the door, and leave. And I love it when I, I hear the little gentle talking happening. And sometimes Lauren and I will we'll come to the edge of the door and we'll just kind of listen in. And just, just to hear them talking to one another, hear them giggling with one another, there's, there's nothing that just fills my heart with more joy and just seeing these sisters who love one another and hear that. It doesn't always happen. A lot of times there's arguments and fights and we have to go in and break that up. But those, those sweet moments are just such a joy. This is the same thing that warms... Jesus' heart. Jesus, he's going away. He's leaving. And And he wants, when he leaves, to be able to look and to listen to his church, relate to one another well, love one another well. He wants to see his church be unified. So much so that they would be called one. And when he sees the church being one, it warms his heart. Last week we saw how throughout the New Testament, Jesus He would spend time talking to us about His Father. But this chapter here is different. Here he's talking to His Father about us. He's praying for us. And in the weeks ahead, we're going to be looking at at all the things that are in this prayer, how he prays for our sanctification, our holiness, and our mission. But But tonight, what I want us to look at in particular is how he prays for our oneness, that we would be unified together in one. This is one of the most dear things to Jesus's heart, is how we would relate to one another. Uh, Look again at a few verses. We, We read in verse 10 this. Jesus says, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then you go down to verse 20, and he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us here in this room. So now he's not just asking that The disciples be one, but he's looking ahead to generation after generation after generation, knowing that the gospel will be faithfully shared with every generation. So he's looking 2,000 years into the future to us here in this room, and he prays for our unity, our oneness. He says, may they be all one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So, as Jesus is approaching his death and he's crying out to the Father, we're seeing the things that are most dear to his heart. And what's most dear here is the oneness, that we would be one. And being one isn't the the same thing as being the same. He's not praying for sameness. He's not praying that we would all wear the same clothes, listen to the same Christian music, that we would have the same personality or the same sentiments. He's not praying for our uniformity. He's praying for our unity. And this is a unity that's, That's based out of the Trinity, in which there are three distinct persons, yet the Godhead consists of these three persons, yet they are all one God. And the church consists of all these different personalities, yet we come together as one church. We are united together. And so what this means is when uh, when I could go to a place like Haiti, and see our Christian brothers and sisters there. I I can run into Sister Gladys, who's one of my favorites there. And, And when I see her, we are one. She is a Haitian black woman from one of the most powerless and poor countries in the world who speaks Creole. And I'm the exact opposite. I'm a white male who speaks English, who lives in one of the wealthiest and most powerful countries in the world. We have nothing in common, yet when we come together, we're united. Because when when we go and we give each other a hug and I look her in the eyes, I see the life of Jesus radiating out of her, and she sees the life of Jesus radiating out of me, and Jesus binds us together in a way that no other thing in the world can. Jesus makes every social, every cultural, every racial distinction fall away. And he can unite us together. This is what Jesus here, he's praying for. And I just want to make a point here that he's not not talking about community here. just saying, "I, I want the church people to have a really good community. And community is important. Community is something we all want to be a part of, but you can have community apart from Christ. I see a number of college students here. If, if you're in college, it's impossible not to have community or be in community. I mean, you're people who all look like you. You're living together, studying together. You're playing together. It's, you, you can't not have community. When I was at the University of Georgia, I could get a basketball, and I could go out in the basketball court all by myself, bounce the ball once, and everybody would just come out. And you would instantly have a community in which you can play basketball for a couple of hours. It gets harder when you're older. Now I could get a group of guys. You get out your phone and you're, you know, your planner and you're, you're trying to figure out. Maybe a month from now if we all get babysitters, we can get like a Tuesday afternoon for 30 minutes. It's harder to get that game, but, but you can still build a community. But what Jesus is talking about isn't just community. It goes so much deeper. He's talking about oneness here. Let me define oneness. I'll go through this definition twice so you can write it all down. If there's, there's a lot of ways you could define oneness. If you don't particularly like this one, you could just email me about it. Oneness is that through Jesus Christ, we can enjoy a deep connection transparency, safety, and selflessness with another person that supersedes all else. Let me repeat that. Oneness is that through Jesus Christ, we can enjoy a deep connection, transparency, safety, and selflessness with another person that supersedes all else. Jesus is praying here for a life-giving, other-centered way for us to relate to one another. So let's go through some of these. There's a deep connection. This, this goes way beyond any superficial connections we might have, like liking the same music or um, I like to go on Netflix and watch old 80s TV shows with my kids. And, and maybe if that's you and we could like really connect over Night Rider or the A-Team. And that's, that's, a, that's a connection, but it's, it's not a deep connection. This connection here, it goes even beyond a family connection, even beyond blood, because this is a connection that endures for all of eternity. You're literally sharing the same spirit, the spirit of God in me. Relating to the Spirit of God and you. New life relating to new life. There is a deepness to the connection that we have. And then there is a transparency and a safety. I like to call this a soul trust. Our soul trust that we share with another. What I mean by this is when you are relating to someone else. Another Christian, you never have to worry about being taken advantage of, but you always feel safe in that relationship. And the way you relate to somebody else, you're always making sure that they feel safe in this relationship. And so when you're with another Christian, you should not never have to worry about, did I share too much? I think I share too much. I think they now know a little bit too much about me and they're going to use it against me. There's none of that. There's a transparency and a safety. We can be vulnerable with one another. You don't have to risk or fear rejection with another. And then there is a selflessness in the way we relate. When we are with other believers, we, we can forget about ourselves. And we can actually be caught up in the wonder of that other person. I mean, we could, we could look at that other person and we could think, wow, Jesus saw you of such value. He died for you. And if Jesus died for you that he might spend an eternity with you, I can just sit here and bask in your presence for five minutes. I can be wowed in your presence. There's a selflessness in the way we relate to another. We can really, really pay attention to them. And to serve them Each one of these things we're going to look at, and we'll flesh out a little bit more as we move through this text. But first, I want us to see why this unity is so important to Jesus. I mean, it's the cry of his heart, but why? Why is, why is this so important to him? Jesus gives us two reasons. Look at verse 23 again. If you haven't highlighted 23 or started, you probably should. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Both in verse 20 and in verse 23, Jesus prays that we would be one so that the world would know that God sent Jesus. In other words, our oneness, our unity reflects the very self-giving nature of God. The self-giving nature of the Trinity. Our oneness is rooted in the love that the Father has in the Son and the Son has in the Father you see before there was before there was anything before there was matter before there was stars in the sky before there was earth before there was you or me there was god existing as three persons And there was God the Father, and he would look at his son, and he would say, you are beautiful, and you are glorious, and I love you. And then there was the son looking at the father saying, no, you are beautiful, and you are glorious, and I love you. And they would echo this back for all of eternity. For all of eternity, there has been a loving, self-giving, transparent, sharing relationship among persons in the Trinity, And creation became simply an extension of that eternal love that God has for himself. You see, if if God had just existed as one person and not as three, and, and then you were to ask the question, well, why were we created? If he existed just as one person, the answer could have been, well, he was lonely. God was just really lonely, and he he needed companionship. And because he needed companionship, he created me to fill that hole in his heart. But God has never been lonely, because he has always existed in a relationship of persons. A perfect, selfless, transparent, forever sharing and life-giving relationship with persons. He has never known loneliness, but only love. And so, when God created the universe, when he created you, it wasn't because he was lonely, it's because it sprang out of who he is. He's the self giving God, he's the God who shares. And for all of eternity, he has always been giving of himself and sharing of himself. There has forever been a deep connection and a transparency and a selflessness with the persons of the Trinity. And this energy is what created us. And so when we read here that that the oneness that we have as Christians, the way that we give to one another, is what God wants. He's saying, I want this because when you give to one another, you selflessly give of yourself people understand my nature they could look at the way you selflessly share with one another and they could think oh that's what god is like that's what he is like he's the god who gives he's the father who would give even his own own son you know we are created in the image of a triune god and this, this can mean a number of things, but one of the things it most certainly means is that you are created to have relationships. That's part of what it means to be created in his image. And God is saying that when you selflessly relate to one another, you image me. You show who I am. Now, does this selflessness come naturally to us? Heck no. <laughs> we do not come out of the womb selfless. Uh, anybody who's a parent sees this. I mean, you're fooled at first for like the first few weeks when you think your child is perfect. And you're, you're telling everybody, oh, I'm sleeping through the night and my child never cries and I don't think sin has actually affected my child. But, th- but then, then they, you realize you were just delirious. If you have more than one child, you you readily understand that a child is naturally selfish and not selfless. Uh, If you have two children, I can pretty much guarantee you what the first word, one of the first words, your second child said. Mine. Mine! As as the older sister takes away the toy, mine! Mine! Mine, they just, they come out screaming the word mine. And I already see some of your parents are like, not my child. All right. My child said mama, dad." That's because you held your child and you're going mama, mama, mama forever. A parrot could have learned those words first. But but I'm here to tell you that the first words they meant, the, the first real cry of their heart was mine. This is mine. They're Selfish. It's only through Christ that we move from saying mine to we start saying thine, and we start giving ourselves away. I have never met a five-year-old. I've never had one of my five-year-olds come up to me and say, Dad, I've I've noticed how you're always doing things for me. (laughs) You're always so selfless. I mean, you're always playing the games that I want to play. How about we make today all about you? And we do what you want all day. I've, I've never, ever, that, that has never happened. It's not on a child's radar. We, we've, we've inherited this sin nature. And it, we come out of the womb just wanting everything to center on us. The sin nature we got, it, it comes from Adam. And when Adam sinned, it distorted this image of God. All I have to do is just look at what happened after Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, Before they sinned, they had this perfect relationship with God. Adam walked with God in the cool of the evening. He walked around with Eve, that is described as they were naked and unashamed. They could look in one another's eyes and they could rejoice in what they saw there and the life that was in there. No guilt and no shame. And yet when Adam and Eve took the fruit, you know what they were essentially saying? Mine. This is mine. And I will obey my laws. And Then that sinful nature came to us. And do you know what the, the first thing that happened after, after they said mine and they took the fruit and they ate it? The first thing they did was they hid. They hid from each other. They had to put on fig leaves to to cover themselves. Then they hid from God. They they jumped in the bushes and hid so God would not see them. They lost that deep connection that they had. They lost the transparency that they had with one another. They certainly lost that safety that they felt with one another. And they certainly were no longer selfless. If anything, they're throwing the other one under the bus. God, it was the woman that you gave me. She's the one who who gave me the apple. They became so ashamed that they had to cover themselves up and hide. And we've been doing that ever since. Humans have been hiding ever since. You know, there's a reason we can't endure eye contact for long. We can't. When, When you're in traffic and you pull up next to somebody... Uh, how long is an appropriate time to establish eye contact? How long, are you, how long can you hold that? Like a quarter, a quarter of a second, maybe? Hold it longer this week. Y'all, y'all report back to me. Ha, somebody's next to you. Just, just stare that person in the eyes and see how long it takes before they really get creeped out and they start speeding up. We don't like people to look into the window of our soul. It makes us very uneasy. I mean, I have, I have a dog who sometimes comes up to me, and you know what dogs do. They come and they just kind of put their head like, on your lap and they just stare at you. It creeps me out after about a minute. <laughs> and it's just a dog staring at me. I'm like, look away, look somewhere else. That's us hiding. We don't want people to look through the windows of our soul and see what's really there. We see this hiding I think clearly illustrated in the book of Acts and the story of Ananias and Sapphira. It's one of my my favorite stories in Acts. I shouldn't say favorite. Two people die. I'm like, it's one of my favorite stories. It's a rich story. Um, Let me just read it to you because it really speaks to the way that we hide before one another. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Ananias and Sapphira told a little white lie. And then they were immediately killed by the spirit. And and you read this and you're like, really? I mean, really? Death because of a little white lie. Uh, there, there's a lot worse sins committed in the New Testament, and yet they don't ever result in two dead people at the feet of the apostles. I mean, all you have to do is read Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. I mean, these people were committing sexual immorality. They're eating food sacrificed to idols. They're even boasting over the fact that somebody in their congregation was in a sexual relationship with their stepmom. They're boasting of that. They're getting drunk at Communion. Yeah, you don't see people dropping dead at the apostles' feet. And here's Ananias and Sapphira, and they give generously to the church. Very generously. Let me just say, probably more generously than anybody here. Unless you've been selling property and then coming and bringing the proceeds and cramming it in those little offering boxes. Unless you've been doing that, probably there's not a person here who is as generous as Ananias and Sapphira, even though they held back a little. So so they give generously to the church, hold back a little without telling anybody, and they are slain immediately. I mean, you can try to spin this however you like, but the bottom line is you have two dead, generous people killed because of a white lie. So it's, when, you, when you're reading through this, it's a, it's a difficult passage to understand because something, something's got to be going on. Something of, of, of higher stakes than you first see. And this is what's going on. In the first four chapters of Acts, as the church is being described, you see Jesus' prayer answered. The church is unified. The church is one. They're always eating together. They're getting teaching together. They're sharing everything with one another. Just a few verses before we hear of Ananias and Sapphira, we read this in Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. Now the full number of those who believed, all the Christians, were of one heart and one soul. That is being unified. That's Jesus' prayer being answered. They are one. And then all of a sudden you have Ananias and Sapphira. They come, and their sin is not so much greed. I mean, even Peter said, I mean, the money, it's yours. You could have done whatever you wanted with the land. Even after you sold it, you didn't even have to give it all. That's not the sin. The sin was this. This is the first time you came and pretended to be somebody else. This is the first time you hid from us who you really are. You put on a mask when you came to church. You destroyed the unity of the church. You no longer were transparent. You no longer thought this was a safe place. You broke the deep connection that we had. And God in this moment, he, he sees the importance of unity, of oneness within the church. And he says, no, do not destroy what I have built. And he gives a severe consequence To the person who brings that fakeness, that pretending, who comes in hiding from other people within the church. This is not the church that I've prayed for. They will be one. I like to think how different that story would have played out. If Ananias and Sapphira had actually been honest with people. If they had met in their home group, their, their, you know, in their sharing, like, guys, you know, we really want to give generously to the church. I mean, we admire what Barnabas did, and that was pretty fantastic. But honestly, we're having a hard time giving everything. We're struggling. And they would have felt that was a safe place. They could have been open about who they are. I mean, they still love the Lord. Their identity is still in him. Could you imagine how different the story would have been if they were vulnerable? If they didn't hide, oneness is extremely important to God because it testifies to who he is and his self-giving, sharing nature to us. Let's look at the second reason oneness is so important. It won't be nearly as long as the first. The first is because it reveals the self giving nature of God. And the second is that it shows the world that we are loved by Jesus, that we are loved by God. Look at verse 23. Again, once again, it's the verse that you highlighted and starred I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them. Even as you loved me. I believe that the two most powerful, life changing words in this prayer are the words even as. Even as. Or just as, your translation might say. The Father loves us just as he loves the Son, even as he loves Jesus. I mean, you need to just take a moment and let that wash over you because we've been talking about that love. Think of all of the love that the father has for the son, that endless, self-giving, glorifying love that he has lavished on the son. And sometimes you get the sense the father is, is so in love with his son, he's li- literally bursting buttons when he, when he sees Jesus, and sometimes he just has to proclaim it out loud. Hey, everyone, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You all need to know this. The father loves the son. And here Jesus says, you know that love he has for me? It's the same love he has for you. He loves you, just as he loves me I tell you what if you could if you could wrap your hearts and your minds around that you would be forever changed that that is a rock for you to stand on the love of the father uh, understanding that kind of love is what allows you to be one with other christians it allows you to have that deep connection because you're like You are that loved by God and I am that loved by God. And and just knowing the love of God connects you with the other people. It allows you to to feel safe and to be selfless with others. There's a safety in that relationship because you're not looking to anybody else for approval. You can't be hurt by someone else. You can't be if they reject you, it doesn't hurt because you have the love of the Father. You're not looking to impress another person. You're not looking to another person to fill any hole in your heart. You're not looking to another person to receive love because you have the love of the Father. That's a rock on which you can stand. That is a liberating way to live. And when you... When you Begin to believe that and to receive that. Your cup gets so filled with the love of God, it begins to spill out into a self-giving relationship with others. Let me ask you, does that describe you? Has your cup been filled? Do you believe that God the Father loves you just as he loves Jesus? That the Father loves you as much as he loves himself? let that fill you up until you reach a point where you overflow selflessly into others. And if you don't feel that way, if you don't feel like you're experiencing this oneness, I want you to take confidence in this. Jesus himself prayed that you might experience this oneness. Jesus has prayed for our unity And the prayer of Jesus will not be denied by his Father. And the work that he has begun in you, he will bring to completion in his timing on that day. Pray with me. Our Father, all of us in here agree with the prayer of our Savior Jesus. And we plead now that we might be one. That there might be a deep connection among your people, a transparency and a safety and a selflessness that defines who we are. We want to be one because we want the world to know who you are, God. And we want the world to know just how loved we are by you. Thank you, Jesus, for making this possible. We pray this in your name. Amen.